Delighted that you're here tonight. We'll continue our study and finish it tonight that we have been in on the divisions within the churches of Christ. We've mentioned several times already in this study that the church is divided in the 1800s, divided again in the 1900s. And the question is, what are the issues then and what are the issues now? As I've mentioned each time, the elders, the other elders have asked me that I might do a quick series of two or three lessons along this line to kind of give an overview of that history and what the issues were and what was wrong with the division and, and things that were involved back in the 1950s. So we're ready to talk about the third of those, and that is the history of division and uh, even beyond that. In our first lesson, we talked about Bible authority. This morning, we talked about the history of the division. We dealt with the Missionary Society of the 1800s, and we dealt with that because that becomes a parallel to the things that happened in the 1950s. And then we talked about the church support of the college issue that started in the 1930s. Let's move on from that, and we introduced just the idea of the benevolent societies, but that's where we're going to pick up. This would be the mid-1900s. And in the Benevolent Society issue, we noted this morning, and this is as far as we got with that issue, is just introducing the idea that this was the most noted of all of the differences in the church in the 1950s and 1960s. This issue carried most of the emotion of all of the issues. As the tension began to rise and uh, tensions uh, uh, that uh, tempers began to flare, this was the issue that was the driving force. This was the one that brought the division within the church, and perhaps it was the most misunderstood of all the issues. Let's go with some history now behind that, the things that developed prior to that division of 1955 to 1965. Orphans' homes had started long before the real division. So those of you who were living at the time and you, uh, in that period, and you remember the division starting in the early or mid-50s to the mid-60s, you lived through that. You may have been young, but you lived through that. That wasn't the beginning of the controversy. Orphans' homes had been around for some time prior to that. The Tennessee Orphan Home over here at Spring Hill began in 1909 and being supported by churches. Potter Orphan Home in Bowling Green, Kentucky began in 1914. Bowles Home in Quinlan, Texas in 1924. The Southern Christian Home in Moralton, Arkansas began in 1926. Tipton home in Tipton, Oklahoma in 1928, and I'm just mentioning those to give you the idea that these homes had started many years before, and churches were beginning to support those all along before it became a real big issue. Now, there was opposition to that in the 1930s and 1940s. Now, remember the church didn't divide till about 1955 over this issue, but opposition was building over that support of those orphans' homes, those benevolent societies in the 1930s and 1940s. Like every innovation, it's sometimes slow to catch on at first. People are promoting it, people are encouraging it, but it's not catching on, uh, at least not widespread. So brethren fought it just like they fought the Missionary Society in 1849. There was opposition at first, and they were fighting it. And even some of those that were fighting against it and later supported it, we have the same thing happening here. And that's why I mentioned this man. Some of you remember the name Guy in Woods. He's been dead for a number of years. But he was a prominent man during the 1950s and 1960s. Even going back to the 1930s, he was quite prominent. And he was one of the tr strong advocates for institutionalism, but he opposed it first. Notice what he said in 1939. This is far, far back as 1939. 
The ship of Zion has floundered more than once on the sandbar of institutionalism. The tendency to organize is characteristic of the age. On the theory that the end justifies the means, brethren have now scrupled to form organizations in the church to do the work the church itself is designed to do. All such organizations use the work of the church and are unnecessary and sinful. Well, that came back to haunt him a few years later when he changed his mind. In 1946, he wrote in the annual lesson commentary, there is no place for charitable organizations in the work of the New Testament church. It is the only charitable organization the Lord, has author, uh, the Lord authorizes or that is needed to do the work the Lord expected his people to do. Well, he was right about that. And there were men who taught the truth on institutionalism. They learned it at the feet of Guy and Woods. He was a great debater and later came out to defend the human institutions that he was opposing in the 1930s. So there was opposition in the 1930s. That kind of reminds us of Campbell, who opposed the Missionary Society, and then later he endorsed that and advocated that. You remember from our study this morning on the college issue that it was N.B. Hardiman who shifted the issue from the college issue and gave the attention then to the orphan home, and then that's when it began to rise as the major issue. We saw this quotation this morning, but he said in the Gospel Advocate, the right to contribute to one is the right to contribute to the other. The same principle that permits one permits the other, they stand or fall together. What was he after? Well, he was trying to get the college in the church budget. And assuming that most would go along with this idea of the orphan home, that's what he's trying to accomplish, and that indeed he did. Well, part of the history was the number of debates that took place. Now, let me footnote here and tell you about debates. If your concept of a debate is all that you ever see on television and political debates, where you see a few guys or men and women standing on a stage in there uh, exchanging barbs back and forth, that's not what debates were about. The religious debates were in-depth studies of the issues, where a man would take a position, he would sign a document that says, here's what I believe and here is, here is what I'm going to prove, and he would set out to prove that, and they would have four sessions or six sessions of two hours each. So they'd debate for two hours on Monday, two hours on Tuesday, two hours on Thursday, two hours on Friday. Those were the short debates they had. The long debates would be for six days and sometimes two sessions a day. And so four hours a day for six days, and that's when they had thorough debates. And each man would speak for 30 minutes, and so these debates went on, and people were converted out of that. That is, they were converted out of error. Sometimes whole churches turned because of debates. So part of the history of this issue was the number of debates. The first one on record was the Holt Toddy debate in Indianapolis. Later in Lufkin, Texas, the Harper Tant debate took place. And then later, the Porter Woods in 1956 in Indianapolis. They met again in, in Paragould, Arkansas. And in 1957, Cogdell, Roy E. Cogdell and Guy and Woods met. This Woods is the same Woods we talked about a moment ago. And then there was Porter who met Beaver in 1956 in Dumas, Texas, and then there was the Wallace-Holt debate in Florence, Alabama, and then the Grider Woods in Louisville, Kentucky, and Sutton Woods, and that's just the beginning of the list of the men who had these debates. Now, I emphasize one of those, and that is the Cogdell Woods, often referred to as the Birmingham debate. It was kind of the pinnacle of all of the discussions that took place. So when all the history is written on institutionalism, and they want to pick out one discussion that summarizes all the controversy, the historians will go to the Cogdell Woods debate. That was one of the most noted of all the debates of uh, all of that time. But those were quite prevalent. And some of them took place right here even in Middle Tennessee. There was hundreds of debates, in fact. Well, there were journals that were published on both sides advocating the church support of the orphan's home or opposing the church support of the orphan's home. 
And so part of that history is to recognize that <clears throat> here are some journals that, that endorsed the orphan's home, and they thought it was right to do that, the gospel advocate. Now, that's the same one that was started to oppose the Missionary Society in 1855. Now they're endorsing the orphan home. The Firm Foundation, the 20th Century Christian, the Christian Chronicle. B.C. Goodmaster was the editor of the Advocate during that, that era, and Rule Lemons was the editor of the Firm Foundation. And they both affirmed the orphan's home, but they went in separate directions. How so? Well, there were two different views concerning the orphan home. So if you talk, and, and basically, though it's not a straight line, but the line was drawn at the Mississippi River, basically is what took place. So on the one side of the river, they thought it ought to be under elderships. That was out in the west. So the homes like Maud Carpenter Tipton and Sonny Glenn and uh, Lubbock uh, Children's Home, those people thought that the orphan's home ought to be under the oversight of the eldership. The elders were the overseers of that orphan's home. And churches sent all around to that orphan's home under the eldership. But on this side of the Mississippi, the advocate and others began to think, like the Tennessee Orphan Home and Bowles Home and Potter Orphan Home Child Haven down in Coleman, had to be under a board of directors. You had a complete board of directors, a complete body politic and corporate that oversaw in that organization. And so brethren were divided over that. So these, these guys I just mentioned here, Good Pasture was on one side and Rule Lemons was on the other. They both thought you ought to have orphan homes, but one said under the eldership, the other said under a board. Let's look on the other side of that issue. There were journals that were published that were published for the mere purpose of opposing the orphan's home and institutionalism. And there were magazines like the Gar uh, Gospel Guardian, Ruth Magazine, Searching the Scriptures, Priesthood. Here were some of the major players of that time. Roy Cogdell, Yater Tant, H.E. Phillips, he's held a meeting here. Cecil Willis, some of those names you may recognize. But as I mentioned this morning, these were some of the players that, that ran... Um, that ran block for us, you might say, or they were fighting the battle that led to there being churches standing for truth today because they were fighting the battle. And so we have to appreciate men like Cogdell and, and Elwood Phillips and Cecil Willis and Yater Tant and a host of others that were fighting those battles for us. Now, the church divided in that period of 65 to, uh, 55 to 65. During that 10-year period is when the division took place over this issue of the orphan's home. His historians tell us it was about an 80-20 split. In other words, 80% of the church went in favor of the orphan's home and 20%, a small remnant, sound familiar? A small remnant was left and that small remnant was those who opposed institutionalism. We're part of that 20%. And so that's exactly what happened back in the 1800s. It's about an 80-20 split. Now, usually they started out in small groups and they pulled off and they started a new work. And that happened right here in Shelbyville. For those who don't know the history of this church at El Bethel, in 1961, in April of 61, because of institutionalism going on out at, um, what's the name of the place? Horse Mountain. Uh, there were brethren who pulled off from that congregation and started in a very small building out in the corner of our parking lot with a very small number. And they started, pulled off and started all over again because of their opposing what was going on at Horse Mountain. And so that's how churches started all over the country pulled out in small groups, and started all over because they were opposing this matter of institutionalism. Now, there are exceptions of that 80-20 split. There are areas of our country where you go into the area and you find churches of Christ, and the non-institutional churches, sound churches, far outnumber the more liberal churches. Places like Louisville, Athens, Alabama, which has uh, 40 to 50 churches in the, in the uh, county. Tampa, Florida, and Birmingham are the places where 
those that stood for truth far outnumbered those who dealt with that era. If you didn't live through those times, you don't realize how ugly things got. Things got ugly and they got bitter. And so you think, well, you know what, they brethren divided and they shouldn't have divided and, uh, you know, how hard could it have been to gone through those days? We in our time haven't seen the kind of ugliness and bitterness that took place in the 1950s. How so? Well, things got so bad that B.C. Goodpasture in 1954 wrote an editorial about the yellow tag of quarantine. What was that about? Well, based on some of the practices of the day, medical practices, he said, suggested, those brethren that oppose our orphan homes, we need to put on them a yellow tag of quarantine. In other words, we just need to ignore them, push them off to the side, and ignore them and go on with our work. Well, that didn't go over too well. But things got worse. Let me give you some instances. Robert Jackson, which many of you knew who lived in the uh, Nashville area, preached all over the country opposing institutionalism. At Taylor Boulevard in Louisville, while dealing with this issue, there were brethren, women is the, in the wood floors that they had in the building, would sit and just hit their heels on the floor trying to drown him out as he's preaching. Men would stand in the back of the auditorium making their way down the aisle, hollering at him, go home, go home. And then they'd go back and stand in the back. He'd keep preaching and they'd run down the aisle and holler, go home. And then they'd go back. Some of the brethren asked to meet with Robert after the service one night and shoved him into a room and closed the door and turned the light out and drew a knife on him to threaten his life because he was standing against institutionalism. Things got ugly. Rufus Clifford had, was, had someone spit up on him because he stood against institutionalism. There were ads put in the magazines across the country that were looking for a preacher, no any need to apply. There were charges that we were orphan haters and we would let an orphan starve knowing that that was not true. Those brethren that oppose the orphan's home will let an orphan starve on the doorstep of the building before they take a dime and feed that child and they knew that wasn't true. But those were the charges. Many were locked out of the church buildings. In other words, because of the division and friction going on, some would come to worship one Sunday and they can't get in the building because those who had favored institutionalism had changed the locks on the building and didn't distribute keys to everyone so that only certain ones could get in the building. That was before they split. Things indeed got ugly. Now this is an interesting quotation from Richard Hughes, Pepperdine University. It means he's among the institutional folks. And the question is, who really left what? Listen to his quotation. The mainstream churches of Christ, that's the institutional folks. Time and again characterize those who oppose institutionalism as unfaithful to the heritage. The truth is that the dissenters stood squarely in one set of the footprints of the 19th century churches of Christ. And by the time the battle over institutions was complete, it was the mainstream, not the dissenters, that had removed itself entirely, almost entirely, from the 19th century roots. In other words, it's those who favored institutionalism that went astray by his own admission. Now let's talk about what the issue was. The issue in the matter of the orphan's home was not should the needy be cared for. The issue was not is the church obligated to take care of some who were in need. The issue was not a matter of how. That's a very important point. When someone tells you that the church divided over how to take care of the needy, that is not the issue. That person doesn't understand what the issues were. It was not our question of how, such as means or methods. 
It was not a matter of systematic arrangement. How do you take care of those who are in need? It was not a matter of a place being maintained. Here we need some place to take care of those who are in need. Here was the issue. The issue is can churches build and maintain benevolent organizations through which to do their work? It was a matter of a separate organization doing the work of the church. Sound familiar? You see, that's exactly what took place in 1849 that we talked about this morning. So here's what you had with reference to that. What you had with reference to this is you have local churches here. All of these local churches are sending money to this benevolent organization that then in turn arranges and oversees and takes care of providing for those who are in need. So what we have with the benevolent society, all it was was a separate organization between the church and the work that was being done. That was the issue. Where is the Bible authority for there being an organization between the church and the work being done? That's why churches divided. So now let's begin to list some of the problems with church support of orphans' home. First of all, we begin with the fact that there is no Bible authority. We won't take the time to revisit Acts chapter 15, but we establish a Bible authority by command, example, and inference. There is no command, there is no example, and there is no necessary inference that authorizes this organization between the church and the work being done. So why was it opposed? It was opposed because there was no Bible authority. Secondly, the problem is it's parallel to the missionary society. If the missionary society was wrong, then this also is wrong. See if you can't see the same kind of concept. What you have is you have a number of churches sending money to this organization separate and apart from the church. That organization arranges and oversees and provides for the preaching of the gospel. The problem was a separate organization between the church and the work. Well, in the benevolent society, you have the same thing. You have a separate organization that arranges and oversees and provides for the care of the needy. Let's take Tennessee Orphan Home, for example. Tennessee Orphan Home was not a place. They owned a place. Just like El Bethel Church is not a place, we own a place. So it was not a place for those who were in need. Tennessee Orphan Home is an organization that buys and provides a place for those who are in need. It arranges and oversees and hires personnel to see to those who are in need. So what we have was an organization that is between the church and the work that is being done. Now let's establish the fact the church can do its own work. The church can do its own work. Let's take Acts chapter 6. You might turn there with me. We don't have time to develop every thought about Acts chapter 6. But what I want you to notice with me in Acts chapter 6 is that here was a case where widows were being neglected in the daily ministration according to verse 1. The congregation selected seven men. The apostle said, look out among you seven men of honest report, etc. Whom we may appoint over this matter, over this business. Verse 3. And so the apostles appointed them. The seven men were over the business of caring for those widows. So here's what you have. Here's what happened. Here's a local church taking care of its own needy. Here's what they did not do. They did not set up a separate organization between the church and the widows that were being cared for. All I want you to see is, here is a case in Acts chapter 6 where the church took care of its own needy. They didn't have a separate organization between the church and the work being done. But let's make that same point from another passage in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 16. If any man or woman that believes have widows, let them relieve them. Now what happens when this individual or these individuals have a widow, they, take care, they can take care of their own needy. They can take care of their own widow. They don't need to establish an organization that they support that it in turn then arranges and oversees and provides for caring for the needy. 
Well, if the, church, if the individual then does that and can do its own work, then this passage is also saying that it may relieve those who are widows indeed. It can take care of its own need. No need for an organization between the church and the work being done. Now, I'm not going to deal with every argument that was made, but we must give attention to passages. And then here's some of the passages that were used to justify that orphan's home. And what were they? Well, let's go to James 1 in verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. So here we are to take care of those who are orphans. So James 1.27 says to visit the fatherless. Well, the passage in James 1 is addressed to the individual and not to the church. Notice the context at verse 3. The personal pronouns anyone and he in verse 24 and verse 25 suggest that the individual and not the church is being addressed. Look at verse 27 itself. Any man or woman that believeth have widows, let, I mean, uh, first Timothy, or James 1 and verse 27, the pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself, or the King James says himself, unspotted from the world. That's an individual. That's not the church. But let's grant for argument's sake that it is the church that's being addressed. And if it is, there's no organization between the church and the work being done. All it says is to take care of those who are needy, to take care of those who are orphans. There is no Bible authority for the organization. So I want you to notice what the, these brethren were doing when they were arguing for this. They just were doing some shifting. They take a passage that's addressed to an individual and they shift it off to the church. And once you agree that the church ought to do that, they shift it again. How so? They shift it off to a benevolent organization. They first tell us this passage to the individual applies to the church. And once you say, okay, the church can do that. They say, oh, no, the church can't do that. The organization has to do that for them. And so they send the responsibility over to that benevolent organization. Let's look at a second. So what you saw in James 1 as you're turning to Galatians 6 is it is addressed to the individual, first of all, and secondly, even if it is the church, there is no organization there. As we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. Again, we have a passage addressed to the individual and not to the church. I'm not going to take the time to trace every one of these personal pronouns, but start back at verse 1 and notice the you and yourself and you and anyone and himself and each one, each one, and he and us and we. These are personal pronouns that are addressed to the individual. Whoever is told in verse 10, let us do good unto all men, are the same ones that are constrained to be circumcised. You circumcise churches or individuals? Well, you know the answer to that. So here is a passage addressed to the individual and not to the church. But again, if it is the church, let's grant that for argument's sake, there is no organization in the passage. So the passage doesn't help at all with the question at hand. Another argument that was made, the church can do what the individual can do. That will come around again. I'm not a prophet, but mark my word, if you're younger than I am, or let's say you're my children's age and younger, you'll see the time when that argument's going to come back around again if I don't see it in my own lifetime. Where the, whatever the individual can do, the church can do. So if I can find a passage that authorizes the individual to do it, the church can do the very same thing. Well, let's see how that works. Let's go to 1 Timothy 5, 16. Is the church to do whatever the individual does? If anyone believing have widows, let them relieve them 
And do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are widows indeed. Here is the responsibility of the individual that the church is not to fulfill. So I learned from that that whatever the individual does, the church can't do necessarily. 1 Timothy 5.16, if you don't get any other passage on that distinction, remember 1 Timothy 5.16. Another distinction between the individual and the church is to consider the individual can gain money by buying and selling James chapter 4. The church can only gain its money through free will contribution, 1 Corinthians 16. And so the church can't buy and sell. There's a difference in the individual and with the church as we see in the passages. Now let's talk about the sponsoring church arrangement. This was the second major issue. The third of the issues, but the second major issue. Because the college and the budget wasn't the major issue that the churches were dividing over. It began to be the orphan's home and now the sponsoring church arrangement. So I can count, I know we've dealt with three issues, but this was the second major issue. Because the first one of those wasn't really the major issue, it had to shift, as we've already talked about from a historical perspective. This was referred to as church cooperation, the sponsoring church centralization, or the herald of truth. So when you uh, talk about the church dividing, someone said, well, we divided over the herald of truth. And somebody else said, well, I think the church divided over centralization. Somebody else says, I think it was over the sponsoring church. Someone else says church cooperation, they're talking about the same thing. Now, what is the sponsoring church arrangement? Well, the sponsoring church arrangement had to do with this. Several local churches, as many as 2,000 of those, so you have these local churches here that all of these churches are sending money to another church. This is not a separate organization, but it's a local church, and it in turn preaches the gospel. And so let's just say the church at El Bethel becomes a sponsoring church. Instead of having maybe $100,000 or $150,000 budget for the year, what we might have is we might have a million-dollar budget to preach the gospel if we could get a bunch of churches to send us a bunch of money. And so now we can afford that television program we couldn't afford before. So there was the idea behind the sponsoring church. This church can do far more work than any one individual church out here. This church may can only afford about 20000 This one about 40000 That one 50000 But if they pool their money together, there's millions of dollars that could be spent in preaching the gospel, radio and television, etc. That's the idea of the sponsoring church. Let's talk about the history behind it. The history behind it, there was a push for greater evangelism after World War II. The Broadway Church in Lubbock, Texas, took on the work in Germany. Union Street in Memphis, Tennessee, took on the work in Japan, trying to evangelize areas like Germany and Japan after the war. Well, what had the Herald of Truth come about? And what was the Herald of Truth? Well, that started in 1947 as a brainchild of James W. Nichols. And then he joined efforts in 1953 years later with James D. Williford. Those two men, you probably don't recognize their names at all. They came up with this idea of the Herald of Truth, and they went and offered it to the church at Broadway in Lubbock, Texas. Broadway didn't accept that because of the regulations they put up on it. We'll see what those were in just a moment. So in 1951, they offered it to the Fifth and Highland Church in Abilene, Texas, and they agreed to take that. And so that became the first nationwide radio and then later a television program that was sponsored by all of the churches. Many of you remember Batsel Barrett was the speaker. He lived in Nashville. He was the radio speaker. Then he later became the television speaker. And so they had a national radio and television program. Over 2,000 churches were sponsoring that kind of uh, 
of organization or that kind of sponsoring church arrangement. So here's how that worked. You had all these 2,000 local churches sent money to the Fifth and Highland Church in Texas. It became the sponsoring church. It arranged the HOT, that's the Herald of Truth, which became really a separate organization later, and then it put on the radio and television program. And so that's how the sponsoring church arrangement worked. Let me give you one a little bit closer to home. Back in the early 90s, there was the One Nation Under God campaign. This was close to home in the sense that in 1991, the Sycamore Church in Cookville, Tennessee, solicited some $17 million to mail out something to every home in America. You probably got one, probably threw it away thinking it was a comic book because that's what they mailed out. They reduced the funds to $10 million because they couldn't raise $17 million, and they mailed out this comic book style uh, publication to every home in America. That was phase one. Then they were to go to phase two and three and evangelize the rest of the world. But that was another example of a sponsoring church arrangement. There are multiple arrangements like that, even in our local town, on a smaller scale, where you might have four churches send their money to one, and then they put on maybe a gospel meeting, or they put on a campaign of some sort of uh, a radio program here in town, or maybe in the county, as the case may be. So that's a little bit of the history behind that what the issue was. The issue was not the preaching of the gospel. Should the gospel be preached? Or could we use radio and television? No one opposed either one of those. It was not is good being done and is the gospel being preached? By the herald of truth, it was. Or can churches ever cooperate? It was not a matter of methods. That was never the issue. Here was the issue. And if you don't get this issue, when the sponsoring church arrangement comes back up again, we won't know what, what the issue is. We won't know how to deal with that. So get this point. The question was, can church A send money to church B to preach the gospel? That was what the issue was about. Is there any Bible authority for church A to send money to church B for the purpose of preaching the gospel? Can multiple churches work through one eldership? That was the issue. So what were the problems with that? And why did brethren oppose the sponsoring church arrangement? Well, first of all, because there was no authority for it. Again, I appeal to Acts 15 as our standard. There was no command for a sponsoring church arrangement. There is not an example of a sponsoring church arrangement, though they thought they found one in Acts 11 and in uh, Philippians 4. We'll see in a moment that's not the case. And there's no necessary inference. So we opposed it because there was no Bible authority. Now let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. It violates the limitation of elders' authority. Let me footnote here. And get this footnote fixed in your mind. Every major apostasy, starting with the formation of the Catholic Church, the division in the 1800s, and the division in the 1950s, and if I wanted to be a prophet, I'd prophesy that the next major apostasy will do the same thing. Here's the thing that's in common. Every major apostasy involved a distortion of church organization. I want to say that again because I want you to get the point. Every major apostasy involved a distortion of church organization. They distorted elders' authority in the formation of the Catholic Church. They distorted elders' authority in the division of 1800s. They distorted elders' authority in the And again, I'm not a prophet. But if I wanted to play one on television, I would probably prophesy that there's going to be that same kind of thing in the future. Well, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us that elders have authority only over 
the local church where they are. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. The elders who are among you, I exhort him, also a fellow elder. Now notice at verse 2, shepherd the flock which is among you. All right, the elders here at El Bethel, of which I am one, we have authority over this church. We have no authority over any other church in town. Forget any other place. We've got no authority overseeing the church at Eastside, the church at Cheville Mills, the church at Bedford, the church over here at Tullahoma. It's not under our jurisdiction. So what 1 Peter chapter 5 is saying, these elders, their oversight is limited to this local church. Well, we see the same principle in Acts 20 and verse 28. These elders have limited authority. How is it limited? To this church and this church alone. That means these elders of this church have no authority over this church, this church, or that church, or any other church for that matter. So somebody said, why don't you elders deal with that problem that this church over here is having? It's not our authority. They have no authority. Why don't you turn some of your work over to that church? And those other elders, no, it's not, we can't do that. Because the elders of this church are limited in authority to that church, and they have no authority here. All right, let's see how this works. What happened in the sponsoring church arrangement, it destroys congregational autonomy. Autonomy involves where each church is autonomous and independent. We just saw that from Acts 20. We see it in Acts 14. 23, we see it in 1 Peter chapter 5. This church is autonomous, meaning we're self-governing. No other church, no other eldership, no other organization overseas has any authority over us. The sponsoring church oversees a brotherhood work. Let me give you evidence of that. There was a meeting of the brethren from across the country in 1973 in Memphis, Tennessee. Brethren from other churches around the country confronted the Abilene Church elders and they confronted them about what their preacher was teaching and the direction they were taking the Herald of Truth. Now the Herald of Truth was their work at Fifth and Highland. But the elders in all these other churches were complaining, we don't like the direction you're taking our work. So the elders out here at Abilene are overseeing the work of another church. That's exactly what was going on. If another church can oversee part of the work of a church, why not all? In other words, if we can take, let's just say $10,000 a year from our contribution and send it to another church for them to oversee that work of evangelism, why can't we do that with some other things? Why can't we assign some members that we want those elders to oversee for us? Why can't we assign some of our resources, our church discipline? We have some members that ought to be withdrawn from. Why don't you elders out there in Texas oversee the withdrawing from our members? And why don't we turn the work of our worship and the work and everything else that we're over to another eldership and another place in another state and another city? We can turn part of the work over. We can turn all of the work over. It activates, here's another problem, the church in a universal sense. In the universal sense, the church has no organization. It has no treasury. It has no work. It has no officers. The sponsoring church is larger than the local church. The sponsoring church arrangement, the Herald of Truth, was the work of the churches of Christ. Remember these two men, James Nichols and James Wilford? When they went to the church at Broadway, I said we'd come back to this, when they went to Broadway and offered them the work, here's what they said. They said, when you put this program on, we don't want you to mention the Broadway church. In fact, we don't want you to mention the work at Broadway. It's not the work at Broadway. This is the work of the churches of Christ. Y'all just happen to be overseeing that. That's why Broadway turned it down. 
At least one of the reasons they turned it down. So here's a summary of the problems with that that we've already done. And so in the interest of time, I want to mention something else. I want to briefly one argument that they have made to justify that. And we won't go through all the answers that could be given, but I do want to suggest this, that they say churches sent to other churches in benevolence in the New Testament times, so therefore they can sin in the matter of evangelism. Well, they're right about that in the sense that we can find an example of where one church sent money to another church. Acts 11, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. But I want to want you to notice some things about this, and that is that the funds were received were benevolence and not for evangelism. Those who make that argument see a distinction because they will endorse or oppose a society for evangelism, but they endorse a society for benevolence. They see a difference in benevolence and, and evangelism. Here's an important point. Every church that received money in Acts 11, Acts, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9, was a church in need and did not create the need of their own making. Quite often in the sponsoring church arrangement, a church would take on a work they can't afford. It would be like us deciding, we go down to Nashville and we say, we want to buy time on NBC on Saturday night, and they say, okay, that'll be uh, $200,000 a year to put that on. We say, we can't afford that. All right, now we're in need, so we're asking churches to send us all kinds of money. And so they start sending us money. Now we can afford. So our need was of our own creation and our own making. That wasn't the case in Acts 11. That wasn't the case in any other passage that you have in the New Testament. Now, bear with me a moment. I'm going to skip some things, and you're going to be glad I did. Let's move and talk about the social gospel. The last thing we want to talk about. Talk about the social gospel for a moment. We're not going to spend much time here, and I knew we was going to get short, so I abbreviated this from the beginning. In the social gospel, there was a great shift that took place. That was another thing that really was taking place in the 60s, but it became a greater, uh, in greater fruition by the 70s. Here was the great shift. This is important because this is going on among non-institutional churches of Christ right now, to some degree. There's a shift from the spiritual emphasis to the social emphasis that was going on in the 60s and in the 70s. I want to emphasize that. There was a shift from giving emphasis to the spiritual to the social. Well, that took place when they emphasized the college and the church budget. Taking care of the, the orphans in the orphan's home was an emphasis of shifting from the spiritual to the social. But more importantly, it became the, the case of where the, the focus of the gospel message was to improve the so social circumstances of man. So that's why they had the colleges, the daycare centers, the fellowship halls, the bus ministry that became defunct, gymnasiums, gimmicks to draw crowds. So churches were building multi-purpose rooms. Churches were building things like uh, gymnasiums. They were having their church kitchens. That was all part of the social gospel movement that continues even to our day there was a second shift. And that is not only was there a shift from the spiritual to the social, but there was a shift from the individual to the church. That already happened, didn't it? But get that shift in your mind, because that's going on among non-institutional churches. History repeats itself. 
Those of you younger than I am, you'll see the day where you're going to be fighting those two shifts among us. I'm not a prophet, but if I was going to try to be one, I'd prophesy that's where our problem is going to be, that in the church organization. So let's look at one more passage that deals with that, and we will be done here shortly. Let's look at Timothy 5 and verse 16. See a difference in the individual and the church. When people start blurring the lines between the individual and the church, and how is that happening among us today? Well, sometimes we, we announce things. We announce things on uh, advertisements that the church mails out about a meeting, but it's a social event going along along with that, and we, we fail to, to draw the distinction. Or we're doing things and we say, well, the church is getting together for pizza over here. Well, the individuals are paying for it, but the church is getting together, and we fail to make that distinction. We're making that shift from the individual to the church. Let's see there's a distinction. 1 Timothy 5, 16. If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them. And let not the church be charged that it may relieve those who are widows indeed. There are things an individual can do the church cannot do. And so here are things that we may be able to do as individuals, but there is no Bible authority for the church to be involved in that. And so we need to understand that distinction. Remember that shift. We could spend a whole series of lessons. I've done that before. Five or six lessons on the social gospel movement. And so I've given you the five-minute kind of summary of that, but that's all that, that we've done. Now, let me raise the question, where are we now? And so let me give you the two-minute version of that, and we will be through. Where are we now when it comes to the issues that have divided churches? Well, church is divided over the orphan's home, but you can't hardly find a church anywhere that still supports an orphan home. They don't do that. Not because they think it's wrong. They are, some of the orphan's homes have gone defunct. Some of the orphan's homes have been, there's been corruption with money. Uh, some of them run out of orphans. Um, various problems that they've had. So most of those churches that supported the orphan's home still believe in that principle, think it was right. But it's hard to even find one that's supporting an orphan's home anymore. So that's not the issue anymore. The Herald of Truth is no longer. The sponsoring church is still going on in other areas, but the, the, the Herald of Truth is gone. So we still have the sponsoring church arrangement. The social gospel is as strong as it's ever been. Churches are still supporting the colleges, but things got worse after the division of 1965. Those churches that supported institutionalism have divided again. Because now those that favored institutionalism that we may, not in a derogatory sense, we've called them liberals because they're liberal with God's word. That's why we refer to them as institutional liberals. They are talking about the liberals. And what they mean by the liberals are the progressives among them. Because among those churches, the issue now is the role of women. Can women be preachers? Can women be elders? And can you use instrumental music? Most of the churches of Christ in Nashville are now using instrumental music, I understand. I mentioned this morning that there's a question at Abilene Christian College and David Lipscomb over the inerrancy of the scriptures. They had a battle over evolution at Abilene. Not a single Bible professor at David Lipscomb believes the Bible is verbally inspired. 
That's how they've gone. That's how far they've gone. And so now they're using instrumental music. They have women preachers in some of those churches, and they're questioning even the inspiration of the scriptures. Well, that's a kind of a summary. That's what the other elders asked me to do, a summary of that history, what went on in that division. Um, if you have questions about some of the specifics of that, we can deal with that at other times. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing? Faithful to him will he find us watching with our lamps all trimmed and bright. Oh, can we say we are ready, brother, ready for the soul's bright home? Say, will he find you and me still watching, waiting? Waiting when the Lord shall come. If at the dawn of the early morning He shall call us one by one. When to the Lord we restore our talents, Will He answer thee, well done. Oh, can we say we are ready, brother, ready for the soul's bright home? Say, will he find you and me still watching, waiting, waiting when the Lord shall come? Blessed are those whom the Lord finds watching, they shall share if he shall come at the dawn or midnight will he find us watching them oh can we say we are ready brother ready for the soul's bright home say will he find you and me Still watching, waiting, waiting when the Lord shall come. We're again thankful for uh, the presence of each one this evening. We welcome any visitors that we might have with us. I invite you back to visit any 